This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my times radio show thank you for all the lovely messages Yesterday, especially about the interview with Janine Webber, um, extraordinary story about how she spent basically her entire childhood fleeing the Nazis. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, well worth a listen. Um, so, yeah, please do listen back to that a cracking episode of the podcast today. Completely different. Uh, we try to bring you uh, as much of a mixture as possible. Coming up, a brilliant chat with Sir Peter Westmacott. He's a former ambassador to Turkey, France and America. He was Britain's man in Washington. Uh, joined Barack Obama's presidency. Really, really great chat here about what does an ambassador do all day and do they serve Ferrero Rocher? Uh, that's coming up. But first, our columnist panel. It's a Thursday, so it must be Web Cram. It's Esther Weber and Robert Crampton. Either of you ever had um, dreams of becoming ambassadors, Esther? Uh, I can think. I mean, I can think of worse jobs, definitely. I think <laughs> as long as you're sort of somewhere where things are sort of fairly, I don't know, ticking over and it's nice and warm. Yes, you could get used to it. What about you, Robert? Yeah, I wouldn't mind. I went to the uh, the British Embassy in Paris once, uh, and that's rather nice. I think I, we we got hold of it as some sort of deal years ago, and I think the French keep trying to get it back. It's, it's basically sort of huge stately home in the middle of Paris, so I wouldn't mind that. Some also, it might nice. be uh, the only way to get abroad at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have diplomatic immunity. Yeah, you can, you'd still be able to travel. Well, on the subject of, you know, internationalism, uh, let's talk about vaccine nationalism. Uh, probably not a lot of fun being an ambassador in Europe right now, uh, being, particularly being a British ambassador, because we yeah. seem to be the baddies, because we've got the vaccine, um, and uh, the EU hasn't. Should we be worried about this, Esther, this sort of rising tide of vaccine nationalism? And are we also a bit to blame for that? You know, tweeting, oh, we've vaccinated more people than France and all that. You know, are we asking for trouble? Um, Well, I think this is clearly a story where it seems like the EU has messed up and they've got things wrong. And we had a very interesting piece yesterday in Redbox from a former spokesman for the European Commission actually 
um, who was saying that it's really symbolic of uh, some of the EU's um, real problems with spending money and how they actually uh, take those decisions. Um, but any kind of you know, finger pointing and saying, oh, they messed up and we haven't, I think is probably quite unhelpful. Not least of all because, yeah, as you pointed out, we did do some sort of flag waving when the vaccine <laughs> first came along here. So I I think we can sort of quietly say that things, that this is something the British government has done quite well on without kind of getting on our high horse about it. Yeah, Robert, just slightly fill up. We've got a, a different Boris Johnson in, in number 10, not just on this, but, you know, a more sombre tone at PMQs, fronting at the press conference on 100,000 deaths, Ooh. not piling in and saying, I told you so, those Europeans are dreadful, aren't they? Um, it, it's, it's basically just a fight we're better off keeping out of, do you think? Yeah, it would be in poor taste, wouldn't it? I mean, it might it sort of stirs the kind of latent Brexiteer in in many of us, even though even those of us who didn't uh, vote for Brexit. Uh, but it would be in poor taste to kind of yeah flag wave and finger point when you're talking about people's lives. Uh, I mean, the problem is that throughout this whole crisis, uh, there has been no real coordinated international response at all, with the, with the honourable exception of the scientific. Uh, response, which is which seems to have really uh, crossed borders. I mean, uh, every every country kind of reverted uh, to its to its nationalistic instincts, didn't it? I mean, there's been no real role for the WHO. We, doesn't seem, we haven't heard a peep at the United Nations. Uh, so this is more of the same, really. It's it's uh, it's an object lesson in the in the in the failures of international bodies. I'm afraid. Uh, what about the border, the border sort of future of the EU, um, Esther? The, on 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 the big test, you know, the the it was the EU insisted that the um, uh, signing off of the vaccination, the approval of the vaccine, was going to be done on an EU wide basis. Yeah, you know, the the immediate response to the coronavirus was done on a national basis in terms of lockdowns and that sort of thing. The EU insisted that they were going to coordinate this across the EU, and on that big test. So far, you know, it's yeah. it's stoking anti... I'm not saying that lots of other countries are going to immediately want to leave the EU yeah. as a result, but it might foster a bit more of that in some of those countries, particularly countries like France, where where that's you know, there's a thread of that already. Yeah, and I think, you know, this, this didn't come from nowhere. I think what has happened this week has exposed some tensions that have been kind of bubbling under for a while. So... Um, the issues that the EU is having with Hungary, which has now turned to Russia for the use of their vaccine, and the fact that Italy had been doing relatively well, but has now been pulled up short. Um, those are the kind of um, intranational tensions that are now being exposed by by this row over the supply. So it, it's not like it just kind of started this week. Um, it, it goes further back. And I think it will definitely be a big 
test for me how how they get through the next stage of these tensions and how they try to maintain the EU wide solidarity, which is sort of meant to be their um big selling point and was such a kind of hard and fast line that they stuck to through the Brexit negotiations. Yeah, no, yeah, there's just a bit of flaying in the uh, um, in the in the union. Um, let's talk about the union that's slightly close to home, which definitely seems to be flaying, and Scotland. Um, Robert, <laughs> what if you were Boris Johnson? What would you do? Do you not go to Scotland, or do you go to Scotland? Well, I wouldn't not go to Scotland because of COVID, but I would possibly, if I were Boris Johnson, not go to Scotland because I'm Boris Johnson. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to preserve, I mean, it's like council of despair, but the the, the Boris Johnson is anathema to the Scots. I mean, his his whole shtick, which is starting to uh, get a little bit tiresome in England, has never has never had any purchase at all in Scotland. Uh, they just the whole bumbling bumbling uh, toff. Uh, it's a red rag to a Scottish bull. Uh, so he should probably stay home. But on the other hand, say at home, I should say. Uh, on the other hand, he is the Prime Minister of the whole of the United Kingdom and he wants to uh, bribe, essentially, the Scots into staying in the in the Union and therefore he's kind of got to make that trip. I, don't, I think the COVID restrictions uh, issue, which Sturgeon uh, raised, is a, is, a, is a red herring. I mean, I don't think that's an issue. He's, he's going to be able to travel around. But in the short term, it probably won't... Uh, improve his popularity but in the long term he's got to get up there to uh to make the case for the union and to splash the cash um, call me cynical esther but um were it not for nicola sturgeon piling in on this we probably wouldn't be talking quite so much about boris's tri- and i just wonder whether actually the tories don't mind a bit of a row with nicola sturgeon that not everyone in scotland loves nicola sturgeon i mean quite a lot of people if you look at the polls but um uh, her having a bit of a dig at him means it's been talked about. Otherwise, you know, a slightly boring visit to a yeah. factory might not otherwise generate that much uh, yeah. noise. And at least Boris Johnson is, you know, sometimes you can get a bit of credit for, you know, crossing over into enemy lines a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if you're conservative, I mean, if you're sort of saying that Boris Johnson shouldn't visit, Scotland because he's unpopular there. I mean, that was pretty uh, horrendous state of affairs. There are some no-go areas for the UK for the Prime Minister. Um, so, um, yeah, of course I see why they'd want him to go. And yeah, she's maybe sort of talked up his visit a bit in a way. Um, but I think he's obviously tying some quite helpful strands together because he'll be talking today about the the success of the vaccine rollout and the role of the union in that. And the vaccine delivery for the moment, I think it's still seen as an overall success uh, for the government. So if he, if he can kind of parley that into... Uh, into a pro-union message, then I think, of course, why not? Um, why not make that a case? I mean, he hasn't really got that much to lose. 
Yeah, no, just 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 continuing to make the case. And actually, I thought it was a really striking thing speaking to John Curtis earlier on. He was making the point that ultimately the, the unionists can't just uh, dismiss what's happening in Scotland and say now is not the time for an independence referendum. If the polls are showing that the majority of people uh, do back independence, suggest they think now is the time uh, for what. So they need to sort of take on the arguments and have a united case. But the prospect, Robert, of, you know, Boris Johnson and Gordon Brown sharing a platform in Scotland to face down independence, I mean, that feels quite a long way off. Maybe not. As, uh, they've had some consultations with Brown. Or I think Gove didn't go uh, yeah, consult with Brown already. Uh, I mean, Brown's involvement last time in, uh, in 2014 was significant, I think. I think the polls bear that out, that when... Brown got involved uh, during the referendum. Uh, he, he was able to switch uh, some people who had been flirting with uh, independence. I think they, uh, they very much need to uh, involve, well, I was going to say the Labour Party. There isn't much left of the Scottish Labour Party, but I, mean, I suppose what there is, 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 is uh, I mean, Gordon Brown is, is, a, is a key figure up there. And uh, I think his that prospect might not be too far in the future, and it, and it, and it shouldn't be. Because, like, as Esther says, they need to make the case. Uh, just finally then, um, let's talk about Desmond Swain, just because we should. Uh, uh, the Conservative MP who has been... Claim, has been uh, Sky News have got hold of a um, uh, video, I think, from November last year, where he claimed that the uh, figures surrounding the pandemic had been manipulated and cast doubt on the number of, pe- uh, the number of people who were in hospital... And that sort of thing. And there's, there is this strain amongst Tory MPs and some supporters of the Tories, which do seem to have an undue influence on uh, Boris Johnson and may, perhaps even the wider media, Esther, which just isn't borne out by what the opinion polls suggest. Yeah, the, this is the really fascinating thing. Is there's been this really um, vocal um, strain of... Um, of opposition within the Tories to uh, a lot of the coronavirus restrictions. And some people have sort of compared it to the Eurosceptic movement. But the big difference is with the Eurosceptic movement, they were sort of giving voice to something that was really popular. And it doesn't seem like that's the case here because there is such strong widespread support for um, for most of the public health measures. So opposition to them is really quite a minority view. And Desmond Swain, I would say, definitely represents the kind of far end of that minority view. I mean, I remember, Robert, you did that very weird intervention in the House in the Commons last year talking about how, you know, a gentleman should be able to go about his business uh, without having to wear a mask. You think, you, you, yeah, you, you can, but the whole point is you're protecting other people. That's the, yeah. you know. He's, well, I mean, that's woefully missing the point. I mean, the man is, I mean, he's obviously a, dangerous, a buffoon and a dangerous buffoon. I mean, how, I can't, does he think that, I mean, 1,700 people died yesterday. Does he, is that... Is that fake? I mean, is that not real? Uh, I mean, okay, he said this in November. He might well be regretting it now. Uh, it's a serious charge to say that the government is manipulating the figures or that, and the hospitals are really empty and all this, some of this stuff that's floating around. But you can't argue with 1,700, 1,800 people dying a day, and it's, I mean, it's, it's frankly insulting. I mean, he does he, I don't, it was Cameron's PPS, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. he was. It was. It was. It was uh, is, David Cameron's sort of parliamentary yeah. age, sitting behind a bit yeah, PMQs and all that for a very well, long time. The person whose judgment I would question is not so much Boris Johnson. I don't know how much Boris Johnson is influenced by Desmond Swain. Probably not very much, but it would be David Cameron's retrospectively. <laughs> Esther Webber and Robert Crampton there. And don't forget, you can read them both in the Times every week. Esther writes the Red Box morning email, which you can only get if you're a Times subscriber. You know that because you're listening to the Red Box podcast. Uh, so get yourself a Times subscription. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's my chat with uh, Sir Peter Westmacott about what an ambassador really does. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. A weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, Anne Summers CEO Jacqueline Gold talks candidly about her parents' divorce and how she coped with a shocking period of childhood sexual abuse. They say the best form of revenge is success, and I believe that. It was just turning something negative into a positive. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson. Jacqueline Gold, in her own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. Forever Russia, anyone? Ambassadors' receptions are noted in society for their host's exquisite taste that captivates his guests. Ferrero Rocher, a taste sensation. Excellent. Monsieur? Miss Ferrero Rocher, you're really spoiling us. Ferrero Rocher, a sign of good taste. Yeah, so the big trays of Ferrero Rocher, we know, we know that that is what ambassadors get up to of an evening. But what do they do the rest of the time? British government has representatives across the world, uh, but what do they do all day? How much of it is negotiated for Britain's interests with foreign powers? And how much of it is just helping stranded often drunk tourists, to get home. Well, Sir Peter Westbrook has had a 40-year career in the Foreign Office, including three stints as ambassador in Turkey, France, and most recently in the United States. His book, They Call It Diplomacy, gives us an insight into the day-to-day workings of, of a hugely influential job. And he joins me now. Morning, Peter. Good morning, Matt. 
Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, we, uh, in the very first uh, page of your book, you, you reflect on what, what exactly it's like uh, being a diplomat, and you insist it isn't all eating Ferrero Rocher. So, so what is it? <laughs> what, what does an ambassador do all day? Well, there is a bit more to it than that. And I confess that I've never been a big consumer of Ferrero Rocher chocolates, but nevertheless, um, it's, a, it's a nice advertising line that they've managed to use over the years. What do we do? Well, it's a lot of different stuff. It's a combination of finding out what's happening in the country where you are representing Britain and reporting on and explaining it to the extent that it matters to UK interests uh, back to head office. It's about negotiating either directly with local governments or local business leaders or uh, talking to local journalists and so on, on behalf of the United Kingdom. Sometimes it's about giving advice to prime ministers and others as to how to handle uh, the people in the country where you're accredited. Sometimes it's about tactical advice on what arguments will work and what arguments won't work in that country. And sometimes it's kind of tricky things like being invited to speak at the anniversary of some terrible event in the history of Britain with the country where you're serving, where you've got to make an, an elegant speech, which is not over apologizing, but also not treading on corns of uh, some painful piece of history. And sometimes that could be difficult. And then there's a lot of using the beautiful houses, which British ambassadors around the world are lucky enough to live in, in many places, as a means of promoting Britain, um, making it the kind of beating heart, if you like, of diplomacy, the place that people want to come to, so that you can promote British business, political, media, soft power and other interests in the country where you're working. And it's about managing people and budgets and, you know, doing stuff like that, like being a, a CEO of a small company. So how do you, um, because, you know, there's a British ambassador in every country around the world, how do you go about becoming an ambassador? Is it something that you, you always wanted to be? Is it something you fell into? How do you, how do you, and how do you rise up the ranks? Well, in my case, I hadn't the faintest idea what the Foreign Office was like when I left university. Um, but back in the day, <laughs> kind of almost 50 years ago, we were lucky enough, those of us who went to university, that you know we were a relatively small part of the population. And sometimes, I won't say you could pick and choose, but you did find it easier than graduates do now to find a job. And one of the things that I was advised to try was the Foreign Office. I was interested in other countries, though I'd never traveled as a child. I liked foreign languages. And I kind of filled in the forms and went through the interviews and um, to my great pleasure was eventually offered a job. So I was a career diplomat from the age of 21 years old. And then promotion is like in any organization, you know, it's, it's based on presumably performance and achievement and how well you do the job uh, and that kind of thing. Of course, there are some people who come in from outside the world. So it's not just you know, diplomats taking the place of diplomats and working on their way up the ranks and then eventually becoming Mr. Ambassador. Uh, we bring in people from other walks of life, either from government or sometimes from the private sector. It's not always that easy to do that, uh, partly because really talented, successful people in the private sector aren't all that pressed by the pay scales. Um, but we've tried <laughs> it because we want to be as diverse as we can and to, and to draw on as much talent as there is in Britain to represent the country abroad. And so where did you go first? What was your first posting abroad? I started off in Iran. Back in the day of the Shah, before the 1979 revolution, and that was because, by chance, I'd started out in the Foreign Office in something called Middle East Department, 
And that gave me a little bit of a flavor for the Middle East. And I decided that my hard language that I would learn, because most of us are encouraged to learn a hard language, would be Persian or Farsi, as it's called in Persian. And having learned that, or having begun to learn that, obviously the sensible thing to do was to go to a country where the language was spoken. So I spent four years in Iran from 1974 to 78, which was a wonderful place to begin a career. And, and, and what, what happened in Iran? You're sort of junior uh, diplomat uh, working there. Is there some issue with carpets? <laughs> yeah, very junior diplomat working there and uh, trying to put into practice the language skills that I tried to learn in, in the classroom at the School of Oriental and African Studies and then uh, sitting cross-legged on the floor of the carpet bazaars in a town in southern Iran to put it into practice. And then I went to work at the embassy. Yes, on almost day one, my wonderful ambassador, the, the late, in my view, very great uh, Anthony Parsons, gave me a job to do, which was to put me in his Rolls Royce. In those days, quite a lot of ambassadors had Rolls Royces. I think hardly any do now. Uh, with a couple of beautiful silk carpets. And he asked me to take them back to the donor, who was a very successful businessman, and say, Peter, your job is to take these carpets back, explain that a British ambassador cannot accept that kind of generosity, and come back without the carpets, but with my relations with the gentleman concerned intact. <laughs> so off I went with the Rolls Royce and the carpets. And I went to see the great man in his office in, in uh, above his large factory. And I explained uh, as best I could the position. And I failed in my mission uh, not to cause offence by giving back the gift. I succeeded in coming back to the embassy without the carpets. But uh, I did learn one or two things about the culture. One is that it can cause huge offence to give back something that's been uh, donated. And one other lesson, an ancillary lesson, if you like, is that you should never say that you admire something that belongs to another person in almost any Middle Eastern country, because culturally that means that they're going to give it to you, um, however <laughs> generous and inappropriate that might be. And you can't get away with saying, no, 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 I didn't mean it, absolutely not, and you mustn't give that, and I'm a foreign government official, and this would suggest a conflict of interest or inappropriate behaviour. So answer is you've got to be very discreet about these things. So I, anyway, I went back to see my ambassador. I said, you know, I'm sorry, sir, I've, I've tried and failed. <laughs> he kind of laughed at me, kind of knowing that I was never going to succeed in the mission that he'd given me. That's, but there we are. Sort of thing you learn on the job on day one. That's literally what you call diplomacy, isn't it? Trying to give back a gift <laughs> while not offending someone. That is that is the diplomacy. And in, ter in terms of the sort of rising up through the ranks, there were obviously plum jobs, you know, and we'll discuss at a moment when you were the uh, ambassador to Washington. But you can't just go straight for... Uh, in fact, it strikes me as being a bit like being a foreign correspondent for the Times. You've got to sort of do your time in a slightly less glamorous role before you can get one of the plum ones so um uh, uh, on the sort of pecking order you went turkey france uh, united states what what is the pecking order which are the plum jobs and which are the which are the the <laughs> ambassadorial postings which are less less seen as less plum well i thought all three of those were, were pretty plum i think in the hierarchy at the time probably turkey was a little below paris and paris was a little below washington um, now, I think Turkey and Paris are probably in the in the way in which we read these things, which is changes all the time. I think they're probably in the, the same category. But Washington and Brussels are, I think, uh, the two most senior ones still. 
So it was a little bit of a progression from, from one to the other. But to be honest, on each occasion, they were jobs that I applied for myself because I'd been in those embassies before. I spoke the languages. I knew the country. Uh, I thought I, had, I could hit the ground running, so to speak. But uh, in terms of what difference can you make, interestingly, um, to me anyway, a country like Turkey, back at the time when uh, it was trying to join the European Union and about a year after I got there, less than that, uh, the present president, Erdogan, his party won an election 19 years ago now, um, and they are still in power. And in the first years anyway, they were doing pretty remarkable things to reform the country and turn it around and make it fit for membership of the European Union. And so the role of a British ambassador representing a government which did believe in enlargement of the European Union I did believe that Turkey, if it, if it met the standards, uh, was entitled to be a candidate country uh, and to join, uh, if the other member states, of course, were happy, was quite interesting because it, it gave us not so much leverage, but if you like, people listened to what I had to say and they realised that the United Kingdom was, was wanting the best and working for the best for that country. And so that was very rewarding and very interesting and in some ways more to do, easier to make a difference in a place like that. And that also applies in, in many small countries where the British ambassador may be a big fish, whereas Paris and Washington, which are wonderful, prestigious, fascinating uh, postings, there's so much going on between people in the head offices, the prime ministers, the presidents, talking to each other all the time, uh, that it's a different sort of a role. And you're, it's a little less obvious that you as the ambassador can make a real difference on the ground, much as I loved being in both places. <laughs> Let's talk about um, your posting in Washington then and um, our obsession with the special relationship. And I know at different times, I know Christopher Mayer, one of your predecessors, was told to, to get over there and get up the, the Bush administration as much as, much as possible. What, 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 what is the reality of the special relationship? And is it entirely a British uh, phenomenon? It's a phrase which the Brits use, the special relationship, in a way that the Americans tend to a bit less, although I noticed that in the readout from President Biden's conversation with Prime Minister Boris Johnson the other day, they did talk about strengthening the special relationship, which always gives a lot of pleasure to people in, in government in the United Kingdom. I tended not to use that term, the special relationship, because I felt that it suggested an exclusivity and almost a kind of an arrogance or an entitlement, which didn't necessarily go down well with other countries or indeed with some Americans. I mean, certainly we have a special relationship. I talked about that a lot. It was a phrase that was coined by Winston Churchill back at the time of the Second World War, when we were, of course, desperate to get Roosevelt to bring the United States into the war on our side. And that's what was, in fact, the turning point after Pearl Harbor in December 1941, bringing America into the war. And then we had all that time to prepare for D-Day landings. And you know, most of us have forgotten we had two million American soldiers on British territory in the run-up to 1944. So that was hugely important. And that was the purpose of the, talking about the special relationship. So since then, we've talked about it a lot. We've had a few bumpy rides. We, we made a mess over Suez 1956 when we did something the Americans disapproved of without keeping them in the picture uh, over it, in, invading uh, the Suez Canal zone of Egypt, but we've tried to cling on to that a lot. And I do think that the relationship is very important. I sometimes think that we get a bit too needy in fussing about whether the British Prime Minister is the first one into the Oval Office or the first one to get a phone call. 
But I'm very pleased to see that the President Biden, who, who hasn't always been best pleased with the current British government and doesn't really think much of Brexit and is very Irish Catholic uh, in his own antecedents, he has nevertheless been kind enough to make early calls to British Prime Minister. So I think we've got off to a good start with the new president. And that's that's great for British interests. Uh, was that your impression of Joe Biden? Because obviously you were ambassador in Washington during uh, Barack Obama's presidency. Did you have many, you know, 2012 to 2016, did you have many dealings with Joe Biden? Were you aware that he took a particular interest in the UK? I, I had quite a lot to deal with him. He His residence was, in fact, the, the next stop up the road in Massachusetts Avenue from the, the British ambassador's residence. And so, you know, we would, we would go to his place and he would come round to ours when he was the vice president. Uh, extremely neighbourly, friendly, um, consensual kind of politician, loves people, loves talking to people, loves to know what makes them tick. And so, yeah, I, I think uh, my wife and I got to know him and, and, and Dr. Joe Biden pretty well uh, when we were there. Was he interested in the UK? Certainly he was. Uh, he went to the Britain from time to time. Um, but he got to know all the world's leaders. You know, they, they've put out on record that I think he got to know 100 different uh, world leaders while he was both chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate and then for eight years as vice president. So he's very well traveled and he knows his way around the world and knows a lot of people. He's also, you know, he's very Irish as well. We used to have a lot of banter, uh, he and I, about whether was he more British or more Irish, who was the one at the expense of the other and so on. And we should remember that back in the 1990s, when we had a bit of a problem with President Bill Clinton, who instructed that Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness of Sinn Féin should come to the United States against the wishes of the British government because Sinn Féin and the IRA had not agreed to lay down their weapons at that point. That, that Senator Biden, as he then was, was one of four Democratic, uh, prominent Democratic senators who advised President Clinton to take a risk for peace. So he's, he's strongly Irish, but he's also, as I say, uh, British. I don't think the one is in any sense at the expense of the other, but it was very noticeable when the British government was talking about breaking international law if necessary uh, as part of the withdrawal agreement from, from the European Union that both uh, the, the president, uh, the, the would-be president and his um, senior foreign policy advisor, now the, the Secretary of State, warned in, in Twitter statements that it would not be well seen uh, by the incoming administration, assuming they won the election, uh, if the UK was to mess about with the Good Friday Agreement and to break international law um, in order to get the kind of withdrawal agreement that the government at that stage was talking about. In the end, it didn't become a problem. We, got, we did get a deal. It wasn't a no-deal Brexit. Uh, and in the end, we haven't had to go along with the, the threat, I thought unwise threat, to break international law. But it was a very clear signal that this president is, is very conscious of, of his Irish connections. And indeed, I should add, of the Irish connections of 50 million Americans. Uh, Speaker Westmacott, uh, former British ambassador to Washington, talked to me on uh, Times Radio. Um, we've just had a message, actually, a text in from uh, a listener called uh, Bill. Uh, so what do you think about the leaking of the telegram that, uh, about Donald Trump that cost the British ambassador, of course, Kim Dammock? He was in Washington. Uh, some uh, memos, cables that he'd sent back to the UK. A bit disparaging, yes. although not, not you know, nothing that no other person might have thought about um, Donald Trump. Uh, but they were leaked. Donald Trump got very cross about it. Kim Dammock ended up losing his, his job as a result. Um, is, is, would it be impossible for ambassadors to be that frank again in future? Do you think that has had a sort of chilling effect on, on the information that ambassadors are sending back to London? 
Well, it was a sad moment for Kim. You know, he had to, he ended up leaving three months before his time was up. I mean, not not much more than that. Um, but I think his own reputation and integrity survived very well from from that experience. But it was it was very unfortunate. There was supposed to be an inquiry going on into how that leak took place and how did those cables, letters, combination of different documents get into the public domain. And I still wait to see the result of that because it's it's quite important. You know, was this some kind of malevolent uh, cyber hack from a foreign government or was this a disgruntled employee or civil servant? I don't know, um, but it would be useful to know because in my day, I would certainly write not on a cable that went to thousands of people on automatic distribution, but in very restricted distribution letters, some, some very um, confidential and... Uh, carefully written, if you like, advice and, uh, and assessments of what was going on in the country that I was serving, which I really would not want to be made public. And I think it, it is very important for the role of an ambassador and for the value of an ambassador to his government to be able to tell the truth, speak truth, sometimes unwelcome truths to power, you know, telling prime ministers and foreign secretaries what they may not want to hear about how the ambassador on the spot best thinks British interests should be pursued, as well as giving the unvarnished truth about what's going on in the country concerned. But as you rightly said, and as several American senators said to me at the time, there's nothing in what we read in the newspapers of what Kim said uh, that we haven't already read in the Washington Post and New York Times about Donald Trump. So, you know, what's all the fuss about? And the fuss was that Donald Trump didn't like it. And that's what was made Kim's position uh, untenable. Was it a mistake, do you think, that Boris Johnson appeared to basically side with Donald Trump, didn't back up Kim Darrick? I mean, it, given that he had even been a former foreign secretary, you know, he'd overseen the, the diplomatic service, and he, he, he sort of sided with the other guy rather than with his, with his own guy. Is that, does that worry you, that Boris Johnson's approach to you know, protecting the diplomatic service? I think it, I don't think it was very helpful. And I think that Kim himself, who's much better placed to comment, than I am, did say in his phone call to Boris Johnson that you know that was one of the reasons why he felt that he had to resign. But the other reason, and perhaps more important, was that it had become clear that senior members of the Trump administration didn't want to talk to him anymore. You know, he had meetings with important people in Washington that were being cancelled because word had gone out from the White House that they didn't like him and that Trump had taken against him. And so he said, you know what, if I can't get to see the people who matter, I can't really do this job any longer. So I think there was probably several considerations, but I think the lack of, of strong and public endorsement uh, of the ambassador, um, you know, it, it didn't help. Um, we talked about the special relationship, but of course, you know, occasion, you know, Brits and Americans haven't always got on. And during your time as the uh, the ambassador in Washington, they, they weren't always that shy about reminding you that, that Britain had occasionally entered Washington, you know, uh, not terribly diplomatically. Well, I can't imagine what you're talking about, Matt. But you're, you're <laughs> right. You're right, and um, I think I mentioned earlier on that one of the jobs of an ambassador is to get roped into marking anniversaries, some of which are nice, happy ones, some of which are less so. There, and on this account, the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812, which most people in the United Kingdom have forgotten all about, but it's the last time when the Brits and the Americans went to war uh, against each other. And so there were lots of moments when um, you know, the, the Brit had to be paraded out and uh, discuss what, what had gone on and why we'd gone to war. It was all about Napoleon, in fact. It was about trade and it was about shipping and it was about uh, forcing uh, people from American boats to crew ships, which the UK needed to, um, 
to avoid Napoleon's blockade of the United Kingdom. It's quite a complicated issue about impressment. But we ended up with this war, and in, in, like most wars, other elements got caught up in it, including America trying to take bits of Canada, which uh, it failed to do. So yes, it was um, a, a sad couple of years of quite a lot of loss of life, but it often popped back. And I certainly remember one occasion going to the White House with Prince William, as it happened, the Duke of Cambridge, and uh, President Obama, who was always incredibly welcoming to members of the royal family. They showed us around the building and we were down in the basement and went to the kitchens where the Duke of Cambridge had pictures taken with the kitchen staff and so on. And there we were shown, you know, the black smoke marks on the doorway leading from one of the corridors into the kitchen. And uh, the president said, well, you know, there's, there's the remains, there's the evidence of what happened when the Redcoats burnt this place in August uh, 1814. <laughs> so, and the same sort of stories would occur from time to time when we went up onto Capitol Hill, where again, uh, the British invaded the, the building during the War of 1812. And there is now a bust of Winston Churchill, the great Anglo-American, at the bottom of what's called the English Steps, which are a flight of steps in the Capitol building, near the great rotunda building, down which uh, the Redcoats came at the time when they invaded and partially set fire to the the seat of American democracy, the, the capital itself. Yeah, when, when we so saw yes, those, uh, there were, there were some interesting moments of... and some interesting bits of history uh, that we had to commemorate. When we saw those awful scenes in, in the Capitol building a couple of weeks ago, they weren't quite as unprecedented as people uh, might have suggested, but it was Brits doing it uh, last time around. Uh, you mentioned uh, <laughs> Prince William. You, spe- you spent a year working as the private secretary to Prince Charles. Um, who's easier to work with, politicians or, or royals? <laughs> Actually, I spent three years working uh, in the palace. Um, uh, I will be drawn on that one. I will just say it is a very different uh, role, a very different existence, and, and perhaps the main difference is that being a private secretary to a politician, usually uh, there is a distinction between departmental life, working in, in the part of government that minister is responsible for. I leave aside working for the prime minister, which I think must be very different. Um, and constituency life where the, and, and their private life, where the politicians will be back in their districts where they've been elected at weekends and often on Fridays. And the private secretary gets on with doing the paperwork and running the office and so on. Whereas when you're a private secretary to a member of the royal family, it is you know 24/7 because uh, the media and and public engagements take place 24/7. So it's a it's very full on. Uh, it's a different sort of a role. Absolutely fascinating. But um, the one I think was because I did both. What one is of some real value in preparing for the other, um, but they're they're different jobs. Very rewarding, all- very instructive. Learned a huge amount from both, but I'm I'm not going to say whether I preferred one or the other. I, mean, <laughs> I love them both. <laughs> it was worth it was worth asking. It's been it's, I tell you, it's fascinating <laughs> uh, uh, talking to you. One of the things um, that uh, I want to ask you mentioned right at the beginning, you know, some of the houses are um, spectacular. The sort of residences of ambassadors. Who around the world do you think has got the best house? Uh, which British ambassador do you mean, or which which yes, country? which British ambassador? Which British ambassador? Oh. Wow. Well, um, uh, I think, to be really honest, the two finest uh, residences that we've got are, are two of the ones that I was lucky enough to live in. One is Paris, oh, very good. which the Duke of Wellington bought for the British government um, 200 years ago, uh, just before the Battle of Waterloo, which meant that he wasn't able to live in it as ambassador because he had to go back and fight and finally defeat Napoleon. 
And then the only house which the brilliant architect Edwin Lutyens ever built in the Western Hemisphere, which is the British ambassador's residence in Washington. But we've got some others. There's a magnificent house in uh, Buenos Aires, for example, in Argentina, in, in the heart of a beautiful park, uh, which is a, a marvelous place to live and work. So th there are a number of them. And actually the house that the engineers of the Indian army, can you believe it, built for the British ambassador in Ankara in Turkey, after the Republic of Turkey came into existence after the First World War, uh, is also a, a magnificent place to live and probably the best foreign ambassador's residence um, and garden uh, anywhere in Ankara. So we've been very fortunate. Some brilliant people have made good decisions in the past. <laughs> and I like to think that these days in these magnificent houses uh, that we do make very good use of them. But it's very difficult in the time of, of, of COVID. I was talking a couple of days ago to my friend who's currently the British ambassador in Ankara, and he said, we haven't done a, a public event in the house for nine months. Yes. So yeah, it's sad yeah. that uh, these tremendous assets that, that we've got in different parts of the world, it's pretty hard to make, put them to good use in the current environment. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, it's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan romash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to i'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information